Welcome to the I Am Woman Project. I am your host, Catherine Plano. I am a creative soul adventurer, a modern day alchemist, and on a mission to empower the conscious people of this world, those who seek to learn, grow, understand, and become the very best version of themselves that they can be. Every week, we have thought leaders, change instigators, and inspirational human beings from around the globe that offer you profound teachings and recent discoveries from the world of neuroscience, positive, cognitive, and spiritual psychology to help you build wealth, health, love, and achieve lasting transformation. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning connection and resilience into your life and your business. As a way to thank our guests for their time, energy and wisdom, we would love to demonstrate our appreciation, gratitude and admiration. We would love to hear from you. What was your key takeout from today's session? By writing a review in Apple Podcasts with our guest's name and insight. And when you do, please make sure to take a photo and send your photo to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will send you a personalized cosmic blueprint for free. It's a report based on your unique birth chart to discover your true calling and how you can best make a difference in the world. Thank you. This week, as always, we have a super, super, super amazing guest for you. We have the beautiful Jennifer Rassioppi. Jennifer is a certified Duke Integrative Medicine Health Coach, a holistic health counselor, a positive psychology coach, an astrologer, and author of Cosmic Health, Unlock Your Healing Magic with Astrology, Positive Psychology, and integrative wellness. Jennifer is obsessed with astrology, business and evidence-based science, particularly as it pertains to women's health, success and well-being. She has dedicated her life to helping women like you amplify their impact, maintain their health and enjoy their lives. Jennifer is here to inspire you into action, help you hear the voice of your soul own your own superpowers, heal your shadow and honor your health as you move towards your most significant life goals. Since 2017, Jennifer has written Well Goods Weekly Cosmic Health column. She's also served as the resident astrologer for Kate Northrup's membership site, Origin, wrote regular horoscopes for Reebok and has been featured in Cosmopolitan Magazine, Mind Body Green, Forbes, Business Insider, Netflix Family and Ari. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. Well, today I am super excited about our guest. We have the lovely Jennifer Rassioppi. I have to do it with an accent. Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you on the show and I know it's going to be an amazing conversation. So the way that we always love to start the show is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration is to share her unique story. So Jennifer, tell us what inspired you to do what you do today? Well, 
I think like so many other people on the healing path, my journey began with my own healing crisis, um, which was pretty substantial at an early age. I, uh, you know, had really, um, it's kind of a long story, but growing up when I first started getting my period, it was just never quite healthy. I had um, very long periods, very torturous periods. Um, and I would constantly go to the doctor and try to find out why, and, and more importantly, what I could do to make my life easier because they were often keeping me out of school and, or just causing horrific, horrific pain. And I was consistently told that I was a normal, healthy teenager with normal hormonal imbalances. I was prescribed the pill and, you know, at one point an SSRI on top of it and sent on my way. And sadly, maybe six or eight weeks after I graduated high school, I had a tumor the size of a bowling ball erupt in my left ovary uh, that was just so traumatic. And I had to have immediate emergency surgery to have it removed. I was diagnosed with a stage one ovarian cancer um, situation that after many, many, many uh, you know, additional opinions and looks was actually rescinded. So I was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer. That diagnosis was rescinded. I was put under close watch and then one year later, I was given a new cancer diagnosis, an endometrial cancer diagnosis, um, which the cure was a radical hysterectomy. And because I had already had this dicey situation with ovarian cancer where they diagnosed it, they rescinded it, they gave it like a pre-cancer condition, they strongly advised having my right ovary removed with my uterus, cervix, right fallopian tube, um, and yeah, so I launched into menopause overnight at the age of 19 um, due to cancer. And then after uh, that surgery, while well, I no longer had cancer and was very fortunate in that way, I had the looming crisis of how was I going to live postmenopausally um, for the rest of my life. Now, mind you, I didn't know that I was postmenopause. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that I couldn't have kids and I wasn't going to get a period. That part was like very obvious, basic science, but I didn't know what happened in a woman's life when her ovaries were totally removed. I was put on a hormonal um, replacement and a, a conjugated, no, it was a, um, a synthetic estrogen and I was told I would be on it for basically the next 30 some odd years and that all should be well. I should get my, you know, checkups once a year. And basically, actually it was more than once a year. I'd get watched fairly closely, but you know, life should go back to normal. And the thing was, is that life didn't go back to normal. Life actually became much more complicated. Um, I started having panic attacks and hot flashes and cognitive dysfunction and all sorts of emotional issues, physical issues. And I just, didn't know what the hell was happening. Um, and this was the nineties. So it wasn't like I could tune into a podcast or go on Facebook and find a group of other women who've had this experience as I could now. Uh, so at that time I was left with few options. Um, so I set out and I started traveling to find answers, to explore alternative ways of healing, to figure out what I was missing. And along the way, I met a woman who turned me on to the impact of following lunar phases um, as a way to come back into cyclicality and, uh, I don't know how to say it, replace the rhythm that I had lost with my menstrual cycle. And that was in 2001. It had an immediate and profound impact on me. 
Um, and it has been the core of my practice ever since. So that's over 20 years ago. And my practice has evolved over time to incorporate um, astrology in a modern lens. You know, after I was studying lunar phases and working with them so, so closely for so long, it became natural to tune into astrology as another aspect of my healing. Um, but even still, I wasn't interested in doing astrology professionally. It was something that I was just doing personally. Um, years later, I became a certified coach, health coach, positive psychology coach. And as I was building my practice, uh, you know, my knowledge of astrology just felt like it naturally found its way into this work. Um, and with time just became the core of what I do. That is so cool. So I'm just curious, how is it um, that it was beneficial as part of your healing for you to follow the phase of the moon? Yeah, so when you, you you know, the the lunar cycle is roughly the same length as the menstrual cycle. And they both have four phases. There's, you know, the new moon, the waxing moon, the full moon, the waning moon. But the female reproductive cycle is the bleed, the period, the part that we're most familiar with. Then there's a follicular phase where there's a waxing of hormones in preparation for a potential pregnancy, ovulation, the release of an egg. And if there's no pregnancy, the reproductive cycle moves into a waning phase known as the luteal phase where there's a preparation for the shedding of the uterine lining. And both cycles are approximately the same length. Both cycles happen approximately monthly. And in absence of my menstrual cycle, the lunar phases were something that I could cue into to have that same sense of waxing and waning of like a metaphorical bleed with the new moon and a metaphorical ovulation with the full moon. And essentially it just became the backbone of how I lived. I don't know how else to say it. So so following the, the phase of the moon, the new moon, waxing, waning and full moon, you were talking about, so it, you're, you're basically connecting with the, the, I guess, the lunar cycle as a way for you to understand what you would be going through as if you um, hadn't experienced those operations. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started energetically living in sync with the moon's rhythm. I was also doing all sorts of like rituals and, you know, essentially earth-based practices with the phases of the moon, getting really in touch with what I wanted at the new moon, doing lots of things to generate that potential for that thing to come into fruition during the waxing moon, celebrating results and and really honoring the full moon as a as a celebration. And then in the waning moon, releasing, shedding things in my life that no longer served me. So there was an element of like moon ritual magic that went along with it. You know, I wasn't just like pretending like I had my period or, you know, pretending like I was ovulating. I was actually doing things in my life to generate outcomes um, by harnessing the power of the moon cycle. Okay, so I see, I understand now. That's really cool, actually, because you are, from an energy point of view, you are still connecting with the face as if it was already taking place. But what you're doing is you're using that energy to manifest whatever that is that you uh, want to either um, uh, uh, create in your life or let go. Is that correct? You got it. And so part of these rituals, what would, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what was some of these rituals, what would they look like? it's complicated it's not so easy to just describe um i uh 
I mean, they were pretty in depth. The woman who taught me was um, deeply trained in these rituals from a few lineages. Her family uh, was Irish and she had um, lineage there. And she had also had lineage with um, Native American traditions in the States. So at that time, I was initiated into her lineages by via training with her. So, you know, we were honoring the the elements, earth, air, fire, and water. We were honoring uh, just different aspects of my spiritual practice in these rituals, setting intentions, writing, writing things out in very specific ways at new moons, taking baths at certain, in certain times of the month. I mean, it was pretty an in-depth training. I don't mean to be curt. It's just hard to, <laughs> hard to fully describe it. But in my book, Cosmic Health, I do break down some of the basics of ritual and, and ritual magic and give a lot of instructions on, you know, what to think about as you're crafting your, your altar or doing things for yourself. Now, some of the problems with the way ritual has been taught is that there's an appropriative element to it, which in this day and age, it's really, I mean, in all day and ages, but especially now really important to acknowledge that your rituals should really reflect you and doing someone else's rituals um, and crafting rituals based on someone else's methodology isn't always the best thing for us to be doing individually because it's not necessarily honoring our own ancestry, our own heritage. And in some situations it's deeply appropriative, which, you know, looking back on what I learned um, while I was initiated into these lines of study, I have shifted actually quite substantially how I practice my rituals um, to be really in honor of my, of my own ancestry, my own lineage and, um, and really respectful of, of not appropriating, um, traditions that aren't mine. Mm, I, I do love that. And I think that I love the fact that you use your own ritual. Cause I think that we, you know, I have a spiritual practice and it could be as simple as, you know, lighting up the Palo Santo, putting on some candles, doing some morning pages, some journaling. Um, and I love the fact that you, it's, it's what resonates within you. I did, I did ask the question because I did think about the Native Americans, how they used to put the women in this, um, the moon teepee where, when they were menstruating. And this is where they used to sit with the elders. And this is where they came up with these ideas, uh, the new medicine, new ways of working. So it was quite, uh, they celebrated that because it was quite um, very profound and a very powerful time for a woman um, uh, to be menstruating. And hence, I was asking the question just to see if it was linked into that. Um, I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, many cultures have traditions of, of honoring women, you know, I mean, for better or for worse, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of casting away of women during the time of their menstruation because they're seen as dirty. There's a lot of traditions around bringing women together at their time of menstruation. And when there was no electricity, women tended to bleed with the new moon and ovulate with the full moon, uh, based on how our hypothalamic pituitary system works in response to light. And so it was, it was easy to gather women at certain times in certain ways um, around menstruation, which often correlated with new moons, according to some, some versions of history that we don't know for, for certain. And many indigenous cultures um, and traditional cultures had practices around this. Again, somewhere um, very patriarchal and saw women as dirty, you know, and some were very in much in respect of the wisdom that could come through at that time for sure. 
Mm, and it is. I mean, if you go back even as far as Wiccans, you know, the, the Wiccans, what they used to do mm-hmm. as part of their rituals is pretty amazing and very powerful. So, Jennifer, for our listeners, you used to um, work in a corporate uh, or you were part of the corporate world and I know that there's lots of women that we've had on the show where we've talked about, you know, working with a large corporation. What made you change careers and how did you do it? Because a lot of a lot of there's this a lot of conversations around this is my passion, this is what I want to do, but how do I make a living from it? So what was your your turning point? Yeah, I mean it wasn't easy. I will say that um it wasn't easy at all. I very much actually liked my corporate job. I mean, it's so strange. I was, I worked in um, corporate consulting accounting. I worked at a big four accounting firm mostly. Um, And I worked on the ethics and compliance team and the work itself was very satisfying. And I always look at that time as like I had got paid for an MBA or something. I don't know. Um, I had no intentions of setting out to be on the corporate path. So the fact that I ended up there was also just like synchronicity in and of itself. But the job was very satisfying in many ways, but it ultimately wasn't. And I I remember saying to my dad before I quit my job, like I was very torn about it. I wasn't sure if it was the right path or even really how to make the decision to go. And I remember saying to my dad, like, if I wasn't me, right, this job would be great. Like if I like didn't have something else inside of me that needed to be expressed. Like I would never consider, I would, this job, I would ride this until the wheels fell off. Um, you know, I was doing well. I was, had many, when I quit, they're like, you could go anywhere in this firm. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Like, you, you know, like they were like, go to a different team. You could, we could move you. Like they just, you know, they celebrated my hard work and they appreciated what I brought to the table. So I was on really good standings when I left. And it was just one of those decisions that I was like, I can't really be me and do this job because the job was so all consuming where I would say the lifestyle. And before I made the decision, it wasn't, you know, just like, can I really do my work? Can I really be me and have this job? I also looked around at so many of my women colleagues, you know, who maybe were like one or two rungs ahead of me or just in general. And I, and I just saw so many women, um, really deeply suffering work-life balance issues, feeling really run down. Like at the time I was just like, Whoa, who would ever have four shots of espresso to come to work in the morning as an entrepreneur? Let me just say, I've had four shots of espresso to go to work. I actually, Working as an entrepreneur, I think in many ways is like, whoa, harder. It's had its whole other set of challenges. But I just remember being like, what is going on here? Everyone's working so hard in the ground. Like there was just, it was an unrelenting clip, but it wasn't productive. And that was my biggest piece was like, I, I was, you know, I, I don't know. My background wasn't like, I wasn't, I didn't go to school for a business degree. I wasn't landing in a business, traditional business background was very left field for me in many ways. And I had worked so hard at everything I had done up till then, like multiple jobs and like just chop wood, haul water. So by the time I got to corporate, I was just like a maniac when it came to like getting things done, like super efficient, always working. Like if you gave me one thing and it would have taken someone like a day, it took me like a few hours because I was just hyper-focused and on it. Cause that's the way I was right. Like I, provided for myself for many years and I didn't know any other way to be. Um, and so when I realized how much lag time there was in corporate, like everyone was working hard, really hard and burnt out, 
but it also wasn't productive. Like there were meetings to have meetings to talk about meetings. And then there was like, you could only be so productive because you don't want to outshine somebody else because there's politics. And I just found myself being like, I don't like, this is taking up a lot of time. I could be getting more done. We could be moving balls faster. Is this even productive? So I had lots of questions like that. And then I'm like, burnout factor. There's other things I want to do. So I was basically torn um, big time. And I had other things on my heart, mind, and soul that I wanted to get done. But when I left corporate, I left corporate with the idea of like, oh, I want to work with high-performing women, like basically these women that are in this corporation around how to get more done, be more efficient without burning out. Like how can they manage their energy, not their time? How can they be more clear-minded when they go to work so that they don't spin their wheels and waste time? And, you know, and like I wanted to do coaching with professional women. Like I was really clear on that. Um but I really had no idea how hard it was going to be when I left corporate to start my business. And actually, to be totally honest, I bombed when I left corporate. Like I had so much money saved. It wasn't enough. It took me forever. I shouldn't really say forever because in hindsight, it wasn't that long, but it felt like forever to like find my footing. I ended up needing to get another job. Um, after I left corporate, I went into um, a consulting for a hedge fund um, and did a many things at that hedge fund um, to just bring money through the doors. And it was really like another year, two years that I could actually like concretely understand what all went into building a coaching practice that was profitable and sustainable and could pay my bills and wasn't going to totally whack me. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess it was tenacity, but also, you know, when I failed just knowing like, Oh, this is failure. Okay. And no, no harm, no foul. What else do I do? And just keep on keeping on going. Mm, I always say there's no such thing as fail. It's always feedback. But uh, we always love to ask the question because some people uh, that we've had, some women that we've had on the show have said, um, you know, to, to build your passion dream or your, your dream job is to have that on the side while you're working, um, never take the plunge. And then others have taken the plunge, completely quit, and then dived in 100% into their passion project or their dream job. Uh, they manifest it themselves. So it's always interesting to hear how people um, have made that that jump from corporate to what they're doing today. Yeah, I mean, for me, I took the jump and I didn't work out. <laughs> and there were some things, you know, like why it didn't work out. Just It was just interesting because I took a really corporate mentality to a very creative thing. And like, I thought like I could get this much done in 40 hours a week at work. So of course I could get that much more and more done for myself because I'm working at home and I don't have to commute. And I had like crazy commutes for what, at one point I, you know, I was living in Brooklyn I was commuting to Jersey city and I had an office and a two, I had two jobs at one point in corporate in the 2008, 2009 um, financial crisis where I actually literally had two jobs in the same corporation on the team. Like I held two positions because they had downsized. So I was commuting part of the week to Jersey city, part of the week to Manhattan. So by no means like I'd be able to whip this thing up on my own and no problem. But what happened was, is that the, for me, the, I, I had to tune into like a creative aspect of who I was to get my real work, to tune into my heart and my soul and my spirit and do the work that I, I now do. I had to decondition 
my corporate mentality. I couldn't bring my corporate mentality into my entrepreneurial adventures. I really thought I could, and I thought it was going to be like this many months because I had this like plan and then, then I'd be fully launched and it just took longer. Um, and I had to, like I said, decondition some of my protocols for myself. Um, to show up in a more creative mindset. And so for me, I really needed to go get a side job. I needed that additional income. It took the pressure off of me um, in a way that just going at it alone, you know, in the set time with this much money, I, I just honestly it gave me anxiety. And so I think when people are making the decision, and I've seen it go both ways too. I've seen people burn the bridge and that's been the reason why they've been successful. And then I've seen people keep the bridge job and that's been the reason why they've been successful. As a coach, I, you know, I like to point out that there's three things in life when we talk about our careers. There's a job like a J-O-B, that thing you do to just get the paycheck that's not, you know, really fulfilling at all, but you need it. There's a career, which is what I had when I worked in corporate. It was a career. And then there's your calling. And your calling is, is what you and I both share now. It's that thing we get to do that really comes from our soul. And a calling isn't always necessarily profitable and or a good financial move. You know, just because we have a calling doesn't mean it has to be how we provide for ourselves. You know, like some examples are people whom which volunteer in hospice, like that's their calling. They hold people through their, their transition is the holiest thing you can do. Um, but it's not necessarily a living if you're, you know, not already semi-retired and or not like the head of something in a, you know, a hospice situation. It's often volunteer work, but that calling is no less holy than, you know, someone who goes on to create a multi-million dollar entrepreneurial adventure. It's just a different curriculum. And so having a job in support of a calling, there's no shame in it having a career when you don't know what your calling is next, when you haven't even gotten to the point where you know your calling, there's no shame in it. And the other thing I'll say is that entrepreneurship is quintessentially not a solution for career dissatisfaction. And I've seen so many people come to me through their years around like, they're just not happy with maybe the way their nine to five is going or the politics. So they, automatically think, well, if I could just do my own thing, I'd be happy. But that's not necessarily true because it would give you relief to get out of the corporate job, but relief isn't happiness and relief isn't your calling either. And so sometimes we don't need to leave our job. We need to leave how we're showing up to our job or how we're seeing our job and actually let our jobs take care of us because traditional employment provides a 401k in many cases, the opportunity to have better credit than when you're on your own and you don't have that regular paycheck, um, paid time off and insurance. And those are things that it takes a long time to really build into your own company, depending on if you have investors or not. And there's something to be said around shifting our relationship to work as opposed to shifting our work altogether, which will allow us to understand what our calling is. Um, and, and I just didn't understand that when I quit my job, like, honestly, I could have stayed in my job for another year or two, um, before I left and just took my time a little bit more, but I, I didn't really understand, you know, you hindsight's 2020. Um, and I think when we look at whether or not we're ready to take that leap and burn the bridge and start our own thing versus we need to ride it out a little bit longer, there's a couple of things that come up 
around what are what's our threshold for anxiety? Do we thrive in anxious situations or do we crash and burn, right? Like, and I think we all have different thresholds for anxiety. And some of this comes back to our neurobiology, how we're wired. Some of this is our upbringing. Um, you know, I know in my upbringing, my mom was an entrepreneur, didn't always, wasn't always the best for our family financially. So I had some anxiety about it. Um, my mom, by the way, has become very successful. I'm very proud of her, but you know, we struggled for times in my early childhood to teen years financially. Um, and I think we have to look at our money story and our threshold for insecurity when we're starting out. And some of us just do really well in that zone of the pressures on, and some of us crash and burn. And some of us are really clear on what that calling is. And we have a really distinct business model that's going to make money quickly. And some of us have a sense of like, I want to be of service. And I know I, I have this gift, but we really, frankly, have no idea how that's really going to make money. And so understanding where we're at with the business model we're stepping into, our cushion around our finances, how we deal with high stakes financial pressure, whether or not we have a lot of um, distress tolerance when it comes to money, whether or not we do just need to shift our perspective with our day job and let our day job take care of ourselves. You know, all these things come into consideration when making the decision, um, you know, should I leap and trust that the net will be there or do I need to really build the net before I leap? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And do you know what? It's the best um, way I've had, I've heard anyone describe it. It's so, so true because sometimes um, it, it's, it's, what sits with you? Because there's obviously a lot of stuff that sits beneath that iceberg. When we're talking about those limiting beliefs, those fears, money stories, those narratives uh, will play a big part in how you move forward. Um, and I love the fact that you uh, were able to break down the difference between the job, which is just a paycheck, compared to your career and then your calling. Your calling is not always going to make you money. It could be just something, and this is why I call it sometimes a, a passion project, where you've got a job to pay the bills, but you, let's say you love writing whatever that may be so that's the best way I've ever heard that described does this link in because you do talk a lot about living successfully does this link uh -huh. into what you were just talking about or what do you what do you mean by living successfully yeah it's interesting because my language and my you know my brand story is shifting um a lot and I'm, I'm really not so interested in success um I never was interested in success in a traditional way. I'm even less interested in success at all at this point. But what I, mostly because success is uh, always, always in my opinion, been about what are your values and are you living in alignment with your values, period, end of story. You know, um, and, and what's your own personal definition of success? And I think in our culture, I've tried so much to disrupt that, but it keeps coming back to this conversation around, um, you know, success means winning, you know, success means achieving, success means conquering. And I'm all about winning, conquering in some, some level, though, though to be very careful around what that word means. Um, but, you know, I'm all about uh, um, being really mindful with the goals I set and then being be very careful about making sure if those goals me mean something to me that I meet them, that I go after them. And I think that we need 
to be achievement minded in our society for many reasons. Um, mostly because when really good people achieve what they're meant to, the contribution to the planet is unremarkable, right? So, so I really mean success as a way of self-actualization of becoming your best self in alignment with your values and, and, and achieving what it is, you know, you must to make the contribution you want on this planet. Now, the reason why I'm shifting away from success is like I said, I just feel like it's, it's a tricky word, you know, it's just like, it has a lot of baggage in and of itself. Um, and I just feel like we were in a different era now. I don't know. Mm. I hope that's not too confusing. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I know, I know what you, I mean, I think you, you know, astrologically, if we're looking at what we're moving into to, and moving away yes. from, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that yeah. but when you were talking about success, it could be as simple as success could be as simple as um, I'm successful uh, about creating boundaries or I'm successful about having a voice and speaking up. It could be so many things to so many people. Exactly. But what I see over and over, Jennifer, is I see so many people compromise their values. One, they don't even know what their values are until they sit down and go, okay, so what's important to you about relationship or money to actually identify their hierarchy of values? But what do you, why do you think people compromise their values because they do a lot of the times what do i think could you repeat the question why do i people compromise their values yeah why do you think that a lot of people compromise their values Mm, i mean that's such a good question well um i think inherent in life is a confusion around what what our values are. And I think you said that, like, we don't take the time to understand what our values are and we don't take the time to develop a vision, you know, for ourselves. And ideally when we develop a vision for ourselves, like if it's a new moon vision, if it's a new year vision, if it's a birthday vision, if it's a 10 year vision, I don't know what, whatever vision, if it's a vision board, it's really great to not just be like, Oh, I see myself in a top down convertible, you know, on the road to Hana in Hawaii but to say like, what value am I honoring in this? You know, like, am I, is it freedom? Is it leisure? Is it being connected to nature? Is it exploration? Is to, once we have a vision, understand what the values are that that vision honors, right? And I think that we're, we're taught to achieve, but not really know why we want to achieve what we're, what we're set out to, setting out to achieve. So I think that that's part of it, just like a lack of consciousness around what our values are. And then I also think that just in life, you know, I mean, there's just, we have values conflicts every single day, you know, I mean, I've had three to four values conflicts today alone around, you know, like I want to be responsible and honor my word in this way, but I'm actually tired now. So how do I take care of my body and stay in integrity with my word or, um, you know, I want to eat in this certain way, um, this wasn't my issue today. This is a made up way, but, um, you know, I want to eat in this certain way, but I actually need this other food that is, um, you know, going to provide me nutrients. Um, I had that an ethical value at one point because I was a, a vegan ish, not really a vegan, but like mo- mostly vegan. And I, 
turns out I was like in desperately protein deficient, right? And so I had this value around living this yogic philosophy, but my health was deeply suffering because I wasn't getting enough of what I needed in that bo- in that diet. And I'm not making a statement that veganism can't be healthy. Please hear me. For me, in the way that I was going about that, I wasn't getting an adequate amount of protein. And that was having a deep compromise on my bone health. And I had to take a step back and just say like, okay, so there's a values conflict here. I really value my health and my bones. And I really value this yogic philosophy that I'm following at this time. How can I resolve this so that I'm not abandoning my health and or my values, right? And it's just basic values conflict resolution. We have to find the and. It's not always an either or. Um, it's ultimately a way to stay congruent with ourselves, even when we're incongruent with ourselves. Um, so I think that that's part of it is just like, acknowledging like, yeah, I really want to be working out every morning at 5 a.m. and I really value sleep. So what am I going to do about this, right? Or I really want to be at my kid's game today, but I also really value, you know, being super responsible at work and I need to plug in these extra two hours. Um, What do we do about that um, when we have multiple competing values at the same time? So I think that that's a big piece of it. I also think that, um, you know, we betray ourselves all the time, all the time. We betray ourselves, not because there's a values conflict, not because we don't know what our values are, but because we don't think we're worthy or we're going along to get along or we're, we're people pleasing in some way, shape or form, or we're just going through life on autopilot. We're not even thinking about the consequences and, or the impact of our choices, Um, and we just are betraying ourselves. And I think that that's probably the most difficult stress that we'll ever experience. You know, stress in and of itself isn't bad. It really isn't. I write about this in in Cosmic Health. We need stress. It motivates us. It does a lot of positive things for us. I mean, it has the worst rap in the world because we don't recover from stress and chronic stress over long periods of time can rob us of so much. But stress in and of itself isn't bad. However, the worst kind of stress is the stress we endure when we live out of sync with our values, when we do betray ourselves, when we do abandon ourselves, when we don't prioritize a values conflict resolution and or a way to be congruent when we're incongruent that makes up for you know that moment of of okay I wasn't totally in alignment here but this is what I'm going to do about it um and I think that that's just like you you know at the core of so many of our problems societally Mm, I love that. And I love that as you were saying, I had a picture of like the dichotomy. How do you, um, how do you, how do you integrate or merge them or find the balance between the two? And when you're talking about, I really could connect with why do we compromise our values? It is that deeply ingrained, whether it's self-worth, self-respect or people pleasing, because you want to belong, you want to be approved, you want to connect. So sometimes, and you, like you said, these are deeply ingrained into that deeper part of our unconscious mind that we're not even aware as to why we do what we do. So I love the way that you described that. So Jennifer, yeah. I would love to sort of link some of this um, next piece of our conversation around your book, Cosmic Health. So why is Cosmic Health uh, an important addition, especially to women's wellness? 
Yeah, I mean, I love I love this question. So thank you so much. Um, cosmic health, you know, is a, is a body of work that emerged from my own medical crisis. And, uh, you know, I'm just so honored to be able to have written it, but I did write it for the modern, the modern woman, if you will, the woman who's like really deeply committed to having a, a mystical alignment with who she is as she goes through life. And I, I think, you know, at the core of that is our ability to live cyclically, to unlock our own healing magic, to embrace the and, like I said, like it's like not an either or, it's a both and, to understand who we are and to know and be who we are and who we are yesterday isn't who will be tomorrow because we're constantly evolving and to live with resilience and to live with grit and determination on behalf of our becoming. And that's essentially what Cosmic Health teaches. So Cosmic Health is divided in four parts. And um, the first part is a general introduction to cosmic health with a look at the intersection between astrology and health. Um, section two of the book is really how to live cyclically and sync with the moon's rhythms and the seasons through the, through the lens of the zodiac. Section three is really understanding your own sun, moon, and rising combination. Section four is really looking at the planets and the remaining planets and their cycles through an archetypal lens. And all of this is married to positive psychology and integrative wellness. So I've taken the 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 meat of astrology and I put it with the corollaries from modern science and evidence-based um, ways through positive psychology, which is the science of thriving and integrative wellness, which is a, a different, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a holistic way of looking at health. So for our listeners, so because obviously depending on, you know, what time they're born, the date they're born, uh, can they get their chart done, read the book? Because um, I, I think if, for them, it's really important for them to understand, I guess, how that links into their own personal chart. Um, and then how does one understand their natal chart as a way to improve energy, focus and resilience? So, yeah, I mean, you'd have to, you, and I give you instructions on a place to go in the book to get your chart, but once you get your chart and you start to understand the little glyphs and the little planets, you can start to understand what, where, what your a cosmic curriculum is basically what signs are most highlighted in your chart, where the planets are in your chart. Um, cosmic health couldn't even really go into house placements because it's just was too complicated, but, um, looking at, you know, sign placements, and so, for example, you know, knowing what sign your Mars is in and knowing how that's going to help you animate your Mars is a way to, to understand the, your natural resonance with your own energetic patterns, knowing um, how to, you know, take care of yourself seasonally and via the astrology of the moment of the sun sign. Um, is a way to really tune into how you're caring for yourself. Like, I don't know when this podcast will go live, but at the time of recording it, we're in the thick of airy season. And we're in this moment where it's really about in the Northern hemisphere, um, taking on the emerging energy of the, of the new, um, you know, the increased sunlight in the Southern hemisphere, the decreased sunlight, but no matter where you are in the world, we're in airy season and Aries has a certain connotation. And so when we can start to understand the season we're in astrologically, and what we need to do to take care of our body, we start to sync up with our natural rhythms in a way that helps us manage our energy, not our time. And when we take all of this in, right, when we know our natal chart and we know who we are on our most basic cosmic level, and then we can map it to the seasons and the cycles we're in and the here and the now, it becomes a fascinating, easy, easy, easy journey of self-care. And health gets so complicated so quickly, but basically our health is um, 
you know, sleep, eat, have some movement, have some relationships that matter, honor our values, find a way to make a contribution to our family, our society, or our work, however we express ourselves, laugh, you know, have some sense of humor, and have some closeness and connection with ourselves on an intimate level and, and, and hopefully be able to foster that and with those around us. Like that's health. It's not a body size. It's not a, a, a blood cholesterol level. It's not a workout plan. It's not a diet. It's a way of being. And it's a way of being that constantly shifts with our environment. And our environment is constantly shifting because we're on this planet that's going on its axis every 24 hours and rotating around the sun every year. And those cycles impact us. So when we can pay attention to those cycles, which is really all astrology studies, um, and we can take care of ourselves in the most basic way, our health is actually our birthright. It's not something we need to fight for or battle. It's just something we can naturally tune into. And I think we just have had this conversation upside down for so long. You spoke about the, so following the, the, the cycle of the moon, what do you mean by live seasonally? You're talking about that we're currently in the season of Aries, Mars, and so forth. So what do, what do you mean by living seasonally? Sure. So living seasonally is, You know, I mean, it can be seen in many ways. It's it's a sense of like in spring, taking care of yourself certain ways in summer, taking care of yourself certain ways in fall, taking care of yourself in certain ways in winter, taking care of yourself in certain ways. But when we talk about it in, in context of astrology, we're talking about the Western tropical zodiac. That's that's the the style of astrology I study and teach. You know, the Western tropical zodiac is geared to the seasons. That's not to say like when it's airy season, it's spring. And so, you know, we flip the Zodiac for the Southern hemisphere. It's to say that the Zodiacal belt is superimposed behind the ecliptic and the ecliptic is the earth's journey around the sun and or the sun's apparent journey around the earth. Now this can get very confusing really quickly, but the Western tropical Zodiac isn't aligned to constellations. So when people say that you know, astrology is the science of the stars. That's not really true. Astrology is the science of, or Western tropical astrology is the science really of how things appear from earth based on earth's rotation around the sun and the zodiacal belt that we've superimposed beyond that. So basically what happens is, is that Aries is a cardinal fire sign and initiates the first portion of after March equinox, so spring in the Northern Hemisphere, fall in the Southern Hemisphere. And then each season is divided by three signs perfectly. So we have Aries, Cardinal, Initiates, Taurus, Fixed, Stabilize, Gemini, Mutable, Prepares Us for Change. And, and we start with the March equinox, which is the when the sun moves into Aries, and we end with the um, Cancer solstice, which is when the sun moves into Cancer, but that's the June solstice, right? And each season is divided by three astrology signs. So our seasons and astrology signs have a corollary that give us different energies. And every single season is an initiation, a beginning, a ramping up, a stabilization, and then a preparation for change. And when we can adjust our health to 
basically how much sun are we going to get this season? Are we coming into a time of increased sunlight? Are we coming into a time of decreased sunlight? Are we coming into a time when we're going to be outside more and getting more vitamin D and communing with nature in a way where we're going to be like our microbiome is going to be benefiting from time outside and we're going to be eating foods that are leafy and green and grown from the earth? Or are we in a time of winter when we're not going to have a lot of sunlight? We're going to be mostly indoors. We're going to need to sleep longer, eat heavier foods, be less mobile. Um, you know, our, our health really depends on syncing with the cycles of the seasons um, in so many ways to really get optimal benefits. Uh, so I hope that that makes sense. I feel like I just went off on a tangent. No, 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 it does. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm absolutely. So if it, when you're talking about when it's winter, you're, you know, like I, I go for soups and, you know, a lot, a lot more like broths and casseroles, the heavier food. Yes. And, um, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense now when you're talking about living seasonally. How does the retrograde play out? Because I know when retrograde, you know, we've talked about retrograde, um, you know, they'll say, uh, some astrologers will say, never sign a contract around retrograde, uh, you know, um uh you know maybe communications will be uh, communication breakdown or maybe technology how does it link in with um health so talk us through retrograde what does that mean or how does it affect us yeah so retrograde is the apparent so well, let's just talk about mercury retrograde so because that's the most popular um not all you know the sun and the moon don't go retrograde um but mercury obviously does and does a couple times a year, three, three to four times a year. And so really what a retrograde planet means is that when a planet's in retrogradation, it, it apparently looks like it's going backwards in the sky. It's not going backwards. No planets go backwards. It's an optical illusion. And it's from how we see things on earth. And basically when Mercury goes retrograde, it's at its point in its elliptical journey where it's actually, um, closest to earth. So, uh, it's essentially swapping places with earth in terms of it's, it looks like it's going backwards and it looks like we're going forward. It's an optical illusion, but what's happening is that the sun, moon and earth are just in alignment at um, the conjunction there. And that's like the mid retrograde point. So Mercury's proximity to earth as it's apparently going backwards in alignment with the sun, earth and, you know, Mercury, um, it has an energetic resonance that seems to throw things, you know, for a loop here on earth. Um, if, you know, I, for the longest time, I was like, I don't really believe in mercury retrograde. So I tested it. And there are some things that like, I don't believe in the traditional meaning of mercury retrograde, which is like, don't sign contracts or like, you know, whatever. So I've tested it, um, to see like, does this work? Does this not work? Does this, you know, and I'll probably be testing it for the rest of my life around like what, what's the best way to handle that particular retrograde. But you know, there's many other retrogrades to consider from our health perspective though, I have found concretely when mercury retrograde happens, it's really a time to tune into our intuition to slow down and to listen and, and, and to review where we've been, right? To look back on like, where were we? Are we in alignment with our values? Have our values shifted? Is our mindset in support of where we want to go? Are we making commitments that we can't really keep? Are we spread out too thin? So using retrogrades as a time for review, deeper looks within, recalibration is a really beautiful and powerful thing. Um, 
And each planet that goes retrograde has a different meaning. So when Mercury goes retrograde, it's a time to look at our mindset. When Venus goes retrograde, it's a time to deeply look at our values. And Venus is retrograde. It's fascinating. I go well into that. And in Cosmic Health, I very much recommend it reading that part. Um, Mars is retrograde is a time to recalibrate our passion and we may not want to work out as much. I mean, I've noticed in Mars retrograde, people get very depressed. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of celebrity suicides during Mars retrograde because it's this time where like passion wanes and people lose their why and it can be really heavy. Thankfully, Mars only goes retrograde every two years because I think it's one of the hardest planets when it does go retrograde. And we had a long Mars retrograde in 2020, which kind of was part of the pileup that created such a hellish year. Um, you know, Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, those planets, they tend to go retrograde every year for longer periods of time. And while they have their own meaning, they're, in my opinion, less overall impactful for everyone. They're very impactful if they're hitting certain parts of your chart or, you know, they impact you in particular ways on an individual level. But on a macro level, Mercury is retrograde, Venus is retrograde, and Mars is retrograde are the three most important retrogrades to pay attention to. And they're really a deep time of review for their own specific reasons. I, I agree. I always, uh, uh, especially with Mercury retrograde, I do, I, t I always say, I'm going to go in my man cave and just invest that time writing and I'm not going to launch anything. Mm. I'm just going to review uh, what we've been working on, reassess, uh, reanalyze, mm -hmm. realign, all of those rewords uh, that really sit with retrograde. I would like to just unpack a little bit. When we were talking about values, self-worth, self-belief, self-respect, all of those things, um, and I, th I see this quite often where we seek external validation for mm -hmm. someone to say that we're doing a good enough job or we're on track or whatever that may be. What would you see as the uh, impact it would have on our health when we are – constantly uh, seeking external validation <clears throat> excuse me oh i mean this is just such a good a good one right it's like when we're constantly seeking external validation i mean hands up for all the peeps here who are um people pleasers you know uh there's just so 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 many of so many reasons to people please um But the impact of attaching our sense of personal satisfaction to other people's validation is that we actually never know what's going to make us happy. Um, talking about this actually makes me a little teary. So I just want to say that like, as we go through our journey in life, we evolve and our metrics for success, for lack of a better word, shift and what brings us happiness at some point in our life, like belonging, right. Or, um, you know, say we have like a mentor or a teacher or a relationship that means a lot to us. And we we really want to be in service to that, uh, dynamic. And so we, we prioritize it. And maybe at some point in our life, like that's a really meaningful thing to do, right? Like we want to get the grade because we want to do well in school and, and that's important to us. The, the problem is, is that when we don't 
uh, when we carry that behavior with us, when we don't let it go through its own waning phase, we're like, actually, I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to get the A. I don't need to um, honor this dynamic with this person anymore in this way. I can shift and I can create more freedom and expansion within myself as I do. Um, I think that that's when the problem happens. I don't know if you're tracking me. Does this make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, c- continue. It does make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and so we get locked into the feedback loop of someone else being happy with us that we don't even, we lose track of what makes us happy. And I I also think that in different seasons and phases of our lives as women, you know, I know that like when we're in our childbearing years, like we're a prime to tend and befriend. We really need to belong. It's biologically wired within us to have like a safety net of friends around us whom which we can tap into in our times of need and in our times of challenge because traditionally that's how children stayed alive, right? And so in that season of life, it is about keeping a close-knit community on a biological level on some level. When we get postmenopausal or we're in our waning, you know, perimenopausal years, we're just like, our estrogen's not doing that for us anymore. Or we've gone through our Chiron return, which is a very fancy astrological term for saying we come into our truth in a deeper way. We frankly just don't care anymore. Right. And so at that point, it's a lot easier to not betray ourselves in terms of some form of external validation. It's a lot easier to be like, Oh, I've done all I've gone along to get along my whole life. And do I really care about this anymore? I'm changing and I don't care, you know, and like that's the second spring energy of coming into that next iteration of our identity that's biological. So there are normal and natural ways of which are sometimes healthy for us to be in community with others that don't always have us like individually, you know, like I I need this, therefore you go, right? It's like compromise and community is sometimes a very good thing. but then there's also, you know, dynamics when we get into others where we're in abuse, we're being abused, we're, we're in a relationship with someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder or, or psychopathy, you know, like it exists. It's like we get hooked into other people's um, shallow bonding, lack of empathy, and we have, we're conditioned in some way to be fearful of a consequence in these relationships. Um, maybe we've just never developed the self-worth within ourselves or we've had trauma. Honestly, a lot of this comes from trauma, unhealed trauma, where we don't have the bandwidth to tolerate the distress of disappointing somebody else. So we stay in these repetitive patterns. So we think that there are, you know, there's a healthy version of, of interdependency um, where we're prioritizing other people's standards and, th- and that can be healthy so long as we don't perpetually stay in it and there's a give and a take. I think that there's um, hormonally based times in our life where we may or may not go along to get along a little bit more. And then there's just dynamics where, you know, we don't have the bandwidth within ourselves either because of trauma or we're in abusive dynamics with others to really honor and understand our own voice. Um, And then I just think sometimes, frankly, there's just laziness, you know, like I don't know my voice and I don't want to know my voice. It's easier to just not know my voice. Therefore, I'll just do this thing. Right. And and that's a whole other issue. But I think that there's a lot. It's not one size fits all, I guess, is what I'm saying. 
Yeah, true. And I think as you was talking through it, I was thinking for myself when external validation versus internal validation, I think that from my experience when, you you know, I'm one of those people pleasers and, and being, and I think before we got on the show, we talked about, you know, me working on my boundaries is one of those things I'm still working at being triple water. Uh, but for me, it's it's also I find that when it's external, it's short lived because it's like a drug. You're constantly chasing for it because you want to be told you're good or you're doing, you know. But when it's internal, the validation, I think it kind of there's this this sense of satisfaction and there's, it's longer lived. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I defer, I defer to everyone to access their own wisdom about it. You know, I mean, I just feel like we, we really like have to start discerning for ourselves why we do what we do and what's driving that. And, you know, so much of this era that we're stepping into post 2020 and in, in our evolved our opportunity for a more evolved way of being on this planet should should we take it is we really need to self-reference and we really need to think for ourselves what we're gaining like the secondary gain from avoiding our inner truth you know like i know for myself when i people please like there's a secondary gain i just don't want to deal right like and and that sometimes is 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 reason enough to, to I don't know, like I, I can justify that in some way at some time, but it's really up to me to sit with myself in the big picture and just, is this compromising my sense of well-being? Am I compromising my entire trajectory in life if I don't interrupt and disrupt this right now? And it's such a one-to-one situation and it's so personal. And I love the fact that you referenced your water because you're triple water, right? So for you, you know, taking on the emotions of the people around you is like your normal, natural way of being. And it's part of your cosmic curriculum to have that that knowing of like, is, is it good to flow right now? Flexibility is one of my gifts. Should I have a boundary? And I think that that's the gift of astrology is that when we can tune into who we are natally as astrology and make sense of it, if it brings us meaning, it does not going to for everyone, but for those of us, it does, we can see like, Oh my, Oh, I have a Virgo moon. I can kind of be a pain in the ass. Is this a better time for me to like, not actually voice my opinion on everything and not be so picky and see what emerges. And I, I guess I'm going again on another tangent, so please forgive me. But the, what I'm really just trying to say is that it's so important for us to discern for ourselves what we're getting out of dynamics we're in with others, what we're getting out of betraying ourselves in subtle ways. Is the juice worth the squeeze? What's the compromise? What's the cost? And what do we really need to do to shift this? Um, and I think that that's such a personal, personal, personal understanding. Mm, I love that. And I think that just, to, you know, to linking back to astrology for our listeners, that's the importance of understanding your astrological chart, even from a well-being perspective. And I love the fact you talked about secondary secondary gain. It reminded me of this lady that was uh, on healthcare 
she was getting paid on a monthly basis and um, and she had, um, I can't even remember what she had, but she couldn't work and she, she was finding it really hard to get motivated. And we really, really got into it and I talk about it all the time because I, I have her approval um, without mentioning names. But when we got into it, her secretary gained it. She didn't want to give up that payment, the monthly payment that was coming in. So therefore, she was holding back from doing what she needed to do to get better. So secondary gain is really important to get to the root cause as to why you do what you do. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I would love to understand what do you uh, believe in spiritual bypassing and what, um, I guess, why is it dangerous? So talk us through what is spiritual bypassing and why is it dangerous? Ooh, spiritual bypassing. Um, yeah, I mean, spiritual bypassing is that sense of like, I mean, I think that this is like the toxic positivity conversation that like really just dominated spiritual circles for, you know, almost a decade. It felt like it was like, um, actually I was writing some stuff on self-love the other day and I was looking at some older, older content from Oprah where it was, she was like, you have 17 seconds to shift your vibe into a high place. So to only complain for 17 seconds, because if you go 18 seconds, you're going to start attracting that negative thought. And, and I'm just like, God, this feels like ancient history when we used to believe this way, right? Like this idea of like, um, you know, I, I know the law of attraction is real and I get all that, but this idea that like, we always have to be positive or that, you know, like, for example, I, one of my parents died due to COVID um, January 6th. And my book came out January 12th, right? Like there, there, like there, it was the most heartbreaking experience and like a spiritual bypass would be like, well, everything happens for a reason. And, um, you know, uh, this is going to make my book launch stronger, or I don't even know what I would say, but it would be like, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, um, just like kind of put a bandaid on it, but truth be told, I lost someone I loved and an extremely stressful time in my life. Launching a book is no small feat. And, um, it was a sudden and tragic death because it was COVID, you know, it just happened so fast and I couldn't say goodbye to him. And I mean, I did via zoom and phone, but I couldn't get into the hospital. I tried, they wouldn't let me in. There were so many people dying the day that he was like really departing in the hospital that they couldn't even handle, um, uh, you know, immediate family coming in because that's how many people were dying that week. It was just like the peak of the pandemic and deaths in the town that my parents were in. And so, I mean, it was a tragic, tragic, tragic loss. And, and, and so spiritual bypassing is the inability to be with pain. Really. It's putting the spiritual bandaid on it, the, the 17 second rule on a dark emotion, not being angry, not being sad, not going into grief. Um, it's avoidance. And, and that's actually a big problem because when we avoid our anger, right, we don't actually have the benefit of of recalibrating from it. Cause anger is nothing other than indication that a boundary has been violated or a more in danger in some way that doesn't feel safe. Or sometimes anger is, you know, we're, we're afraid to feel sad. So we repress our sadness and we just get angry all the time. Um, you know, and again, this comes back to knowing who you are and knowing what you're doing with your emotions and why they're showing up, but there's really nothing wrong with anger. So long as we're not harming somebody else with our anger, right? It's like our reaction to our emotion is the problem, not the emotion itself. 
And so it's really important from an emotional health perspective that we know what to do with our emotions, not just avoid them, right? Another thing that I've heard a lot is that, you know, I can't have kids. And I went through a period in my life where my infertility sadness was just desperate. Like I was, I was just so sad that I couldn't have kids. And so many people were like, well, everything happens for a reason. And you've known you couldn't have kids. Why is this bothering you now? And, you know, I don't have that infertility grief anymore. It's not something I live with every day. It's something I've digested. I've processed, I've integrated. I'm very much looking forward to living the life I get to live from this point forward without being in that perpetual pain. But I was in it for a while and it was exhausting. I think for people that were very close to me, especially people who which could have kids and were having kids and felt bad about having kids. And, you know, they took that on in their own way. Um, but it was an important process for me to go through that. And I don't actually have that anymore, right? Like I grieved that and it's integrated. Whereas if I avoided it, it would be this thing that stabbed me in the back every single time I saw a kid in a stroller out on the street. Does that make sense? Like it's just these, we have to be able to move through our emotions, um, without being afraid of them because otherwise they can do severe damage to our body long-term, um, our relationships, our peace of mind, our sense of well-being, our safety and security in the world. And um, yeah, I'm just a huge fan of facing things head on as mm. opposed to avoiding them. Oh, absolutely. Or I should say facing things as head on as you can, right? Sometimes we can't go 100% in the direction of it because that's not healthy either, but titrating it to the extent that is healthy. Sorry, you were going to say no, something. No, no, no. First of all, I just want to say I'm really sorry to hear uh, about the news about your loss of your uh, father. Um, my condolences. And Thank the you. the other thing is, I think it's also really important to express our emotions. Um, and because when we don't, like you were talking about spiritual bypass, when you're like everything happens for a reason, and you know that, that I have that tendency to do that rather than sit in the emotion because I'm very um, optimistic. And so I tend to jump what I need to experience and know knows that it will come up in something, uh, in some way, shape or form later on down my, tra my track or down my timeline. So it's really important for us to experience those emotions and make sure that they go through, allow them. It's when we get in the way and we stop them, they get blocked in our meridians. And, and then this is where I guess it causes problems with our health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, in, it's important to, uh, to just acknowledge, you know, we want to rush through things and, it, it, and it's okay to, to linger a little bit in our pain. It, I actually think we have to, because our pain is our, is a teacher, right? And it's not, you know, we don't want to stay there too long. We don't want to be a martyr to it. Um, but we also don't want to ignore what it's here to teach us. Um, and I will say like, I, you know, I think that these are philosophical conversations. Does everything happen for a reason? And I'm not so sure it does. I think we find a reason in everything that happens, right? We, we absolutely can and must find a reason in everything that happens. Like we give our, we give life meaning. Um, and oftentimes so that, that requires being with our existential struggle, right? Like the universe isn't going to give us the meaning. Our existential struggle is going to be the avenue to us finding and creating deeper meaning. So when we're talking about um, not betraying our values and really knowing who we are and, and being able to discern things, it's, it's through our existential struggles sometimes that we, we learn what our values are. You know, my stepfather dying when, at that time and like that loss has actually radically changed me. 
It's radically changed me. Um, and I'm still learning who I am in light of that, but I, my, my values have become like rip roaring clear in a way that they just weren't prior to that moment. And, um, in a new emerging way, I should say they were clear for what they were then, but they've shifted and it has to do with sitting with that. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful. So Jennifer, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you, my dearest? Oh my God, one word that describes my personal brand, um, rhythm. Mm, Love it, love it. And the last question we always love to ask our woman of inspiration is to pick three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to give for our listeners today. So there could be three practical exercises for our audience. Yeah, I think one is to um, know your values, right? So if you haven't spent time writing out your values, one exercise you can do is think about a time in your life where you felt like everything was like going well. Like maybe it's a moment or an experience, a peak experience. Maybe it's like giving birth to a child and it was like the best, most exciting moment of your life. Maybe it was a great vacation. And think about what what was going on in that moment that made you feel alive and connected and devoted and um, and see what the values are there. Like, were, was it creativity or freedom? And just come up with a list of maybe three or four values that are your primary values and, and, and put them somewhere, like on a sticky pad, on your computer, look at them, connect with them uh, and see, see how much you can honor them in your life. Um, so connect with your values, know your values. I think two is understand that we're cyclical. We're cyclical. We're, we are constantly in motion. We're constantly in motion on a planet that alternates and fluctuates between night and day. We have a moon that goes around the earth and that's constantly going through its phases. Our earth is going around the sun. So we're constantly having seasons and you don't need to track all of these cycles at at all at any given time, you can track one or just even understand your own energetic rhythms throughout the day, or you can track every cycle there is, you know, Mercury, Venus, Moon, Mars, whatever. Um, but I think to just honor the fact that we are cyclical and no moment lasts. So we're constantly in shift. And yeah, just track a cycle. Um, I would that's what I would say. And number three is have the courage to sit with what is um, because in that same breath that we're in this, in these cycles of change, everything we're going through, all of our emotions, everything is impermanent. So what feels like is an albatross that's never going to end actually can be really short lived if we presence ourselves to it and just move through it. So my third piece of advice is just have the courage to be with what is without needing to avoid it or run away from it or put a bandaid on it and just let it be. I love all three. And the thing that dropped in as you were saying it was this too shall pass, which is is all about movement. We're never stuck in one, uh, whatever emotion, energy, whatever the cycle, rhythm. uh, It's constantly Mm -hmm. ever flowing. So, Jennifer, where's the best place for our listeners to find you? Yeah. So you can find me um, on my website, jenniferraciope.com. Um, and on Instagram at Jen Rassiope, um, they're pretty, pretty often daily, mostly. <laughs> and then I blog on my website. You can join my newsletter. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show You and sharing your wealth of wisdom. And thank you for your time and energy. Oh my God. 
thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please share the show with your friends to help us make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes or please subscribe to the show. The more subscribers, the better the speakers for the show, which then means more value for you so that together we can help the world become a better place. Don't give it another thought. Hit that subscribe button and help people get their weekly lessons. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Catherine Plano. Until next week, please take care of yourself. Much love and gratitude. Thank you.